Force board. Hello friends, I'm Malcolm Powder. Episode 6 of the Smorgasbord is here and I think it's one of the best ones so far. The guests are amazing and I worked really hard on the editing, even if it might not always sound like it. <laughs> um, but I'm really, really proud of this episode and I offered forth unto you all as a Christmas present for your ears. On this festive edition of the show, I will be talking to author Ian Lowell about music, politics, and life in 1960s New York. But my first guest is musician Lee Nicholson. Lee was the front man for a highly rated indie band in the 90s, before leaving the UK and eventually moving to Vancouver in Canada, where he now makes his own music. Lee and I talked about his solo project, the resurgence of tapes, and the best job he ever had. Enjoy! Lee Nicholson, welcome to the Smorgasbord. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for your time. This is your first time on a podcast, is it? It is, unless someone's done something without me knowing about it. But yeah, <laughs> um, definitely. Yep, I've uh, done a couple of interviews in my previous music life and also with some bands in, in the UK. But yeah, this is my first podcast. Okay, excellent. So, so talking about those bands that you used to be in, this guy, he did a blog about your old band, which is called Formula One. That's correct, yeah. It was a really good blog because it was clear that he sort of really loved the band and some of the anecdotes in it were really cool. My favorite anecdote was how he said that he used to write to you guys and send you Christmas cards and stuff, which is just brilliant. But he said that he wrote to you saying that he didn't know when you guys would be playing at Reading and he asked you to let him know. So you, Lee, the singer, rang him up and told him. <laughs> I think that's amazing. <laughs> Uh, well, we were nice people back then, um, <laughs> you know, and anything to get a fan, right? I mean, sure, we used yeah. to play, we used to play the, the so-called toilet tour, you know, pubs up and down the country and driving around in a minivan and not always having a place to crash. And so speaking to fans after the gigs, trying to find a couch that we could sleep on. And so, and this is all sort of pre-email before all that internet kind of stuff kicked in, yep. which is amazing because it really isn't that long ago. But yeah, so I actually I remember him, and um, yeah, he wanted to know when we were playing at Reading because well, when we found out we were playing at Reading, it was like, my God, we're playing at Reading! Like, wow, what's going on? This is amazing. So yeah, tried to get in touch with him because he he came to a lot of our gigs, and uh, so he was a, he was a pretty hardcore follower. So anything to help him out, you know? Excellent. Why not? Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I think, you know, and one thing that he mentions as well is that you wouldn't kind of get too much of that nowadays because the best way you could get a hold of a band is by tweeting them and their Twitter account would be handled by some minion. It's very rare that it's somebody from the actual band. Yeah, exactly. As I say, I mean, we we didn't even have an email address. We didn't we didn't have a website. We had nothing like that at all. Facebook wasn't around. Um, so the only way to stay in touch with people was either to see them at a gig, yeah. or if you could get a, or if you could get a phone number, then it would go down in the black book. Wow. And that's how we kept in touch with our fans. Um, word would spread as well. I mean, we we used to have good listings in the enemy. The enemy really liked us for for a few years, um, so they would always list our bands regardless of what um, shitty little pub we were playing in. <laughs> um, so yeah, so people either found out either through word of mouth or or the odd phone call that we would get in touch with people do you wish that you'd made it because you know it can go one way or, or the other when it bands sort of blow up you know it can either be great and they can make great music and go on to become you know an even better band or they can just completely implode were you happy with what you got 
Oh, yeah, very, very happy. I'm very proud of what we achieved, you know, for just the few years that we were together. Um, it was a lot of fun. You know, what else would I have done in, at that age in my life? Yeah, it was amazing. They were really good days, and we still talk about them now. I go back to the UK once a year, and I meet up with the rest of the band. And it's it's good days, really, just chatting and reminiscing. And you do kind of think, oh, in hindsight, oh, had we accepted that piddly little one-album deal with that piddly little record label, you know, would it have made a difference? Yeah. Maybe we should have followed our hearts a little bit more and wrote music more of what we liked rather than what other we thought other people would like. So, yeah, but, you know, it's all in hindsight, isn't it? But, uh, no, I'm very happy with what happened. It's all good. So moving on to your sort of relocation from the UK to Vancouver, you did that about, you said, at the end of the 90s? Was that kind of when the band started to dissipate? Formula One dissipated in, in 99 when when we moved to Brighton, and then the, the band down in Brighton was called Domestic Four. Um, we did an album and a 12-inch and a couple of singles, and then 2003 is when I left the UK. Okay. And I just needed to get out. I, I, I don't really, can't really explain it, but I just became a little bit disillusioned with the whole British culture. I, man, it sounds like you foresaw Brexit 13 years before it happened. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just needed something, and I, I knew it. And I knew it meant leaving. So I got a job as a, working as a, a tour leader for an adventure travel company. In, I, I was working as a marketing manager for, called, for findaproperty.com. I don't even know if that website's still around. Um, well, it used to be based in, in Brighton. So I was working for them, and then, and then I quit and left and moved to Central America. And I was leading these backpacking tours in like Guatemala and Costa Rica and Mexico, oh, cool. Honduras and Nicaragua. And that was a 12-month a, a contract, which turned into six years. Oh, wow. So I kind of backpacked around Latin America about four years and then I ended up in Mexico for two years working for this adventure travel company and uh, one day I get an email from my boss saying oh we're, we want to open up an office in Canada do you want to move there um, go and live in, in Canada so it's like yeah well, sure so that's how I ended up in, in Vancouver and I've been here seven years Matt that sounds great yeah like all that time traveling and stuff that must have been amazing uh, it was, yeah. I couldn't do it now. I don't have the energy now. But at, yeah, at the time, it was it was totally, yeah, totally different. I didn't even know that kind of job existed, and I I no longer work for that company. I, I I do still have a day job, but it is with a different company now. Vancouver's turned out to be a good place to live, albeit um, I will I will be back to the UK before I die. That's, right. That's uh, that's a little promise I've given to myself. Um, I'll let yeah, to I'll, the UK. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll end my life in the UK. Well, depending on what the political situation is like, and, but we'll see. Hey, who knows what's happening? Um, but yeah, for now it's good. Yeah, I'm happy. Obviously, yeah, you're based in Canada now, and you're bringing out your own music. Um, so this is a completely solo project, is it? The test card project that you've got? Uh, yeah, I now call myself test card. Um, I've been doing. I took a break from making music. Obviously, those whole, that whole six years I was running around Latin America, um, and even the first sort of two, three years of moving to Vancouver, I didn't do any music whatsoever. Um, and then I bought myself an acoustic guitar and started writing some songs, and um, and then started to looking into setting up a little studio in in my bedroom. And of course, I mean, technology 
even from uh, 2002, when Domestic Four did their last stuff, well, I kind of left Domestic Four, they carried on doing stuff, but right up until 2002 to 2000 and whatever, 2012, that's only 10 years. Yeah. And the, the, the change in technology is just phenomenal. Totally yeah. amazing. So I, I went down to this local record uh, place and got speaking to them. And they said, well, you need to go to this shop and go and speak to them. And I went there and I said, okay, well, what do I need? And they said, well, do you have a computer? Yeah. Well, then that's it. Yeah. Like, what? Really? <laughs> so, yeah, all you need is a microphone, a, a, a small piece of kit called an audio interface, and, and a computer. And off you go. You know, that, that's, that's really it in a nutshell. Um, what you do with that computer and how you apply it to music is i guess um the artistic side of things right yeah. i mean people say so it's very easy you just press the button now and you know the tune makes itself well it's kind of not true really yeah. so yeah so now that i started doing like guitar drum stuff and that was kind of kind of fun um under the name of electra home okay which is probably still on Bandcamp. i should check that out actually so yeah that was just for fun just whatever but then, um, then I started going all sort of ambient electronica, which I I have always been into since sort of early nineties. Uh, bands like Ortecra, the whole Warp record thing, Apex Twin, Ortecra, B12, all the, all those lot. Yep. Really, really uh, used to love all that stuff. Um, so yeah, so now I call myself Test Card, and I've been doing this ambient electronica stuff, and uh, yeah, it's going really, really well. The whole test card thing is is really really new. I haven't I haven't uploaded or mentioned it to anybody since I started writing this music about a year just over a year ago. So rather than do with like with my electro home stuff, I used to just burn CDs and send it to all the the university radio stations in Canada and hope for some airplay and then just plug it up onto Bandcamp and see what happens, which was kind of fun and a lot of the radio stations did play it, but. Um, for test card, I actually decided to send a demo to record labels oh, and nice. take take the old school route. So I sent out all these demos. Although I must say, it's not you don't send a tape anymore. You know, you, you send a link, you send a link to your SoundCloud page. That's that's the modern um, the modern way of sending demos these days. Although, yeah, fair enough. Re re remind me to tell you a story about tape after okay. after. This. Um, so yeah, so I sent out my my this link to to SoundCloud, and uh, yeah, I, I had some really good uh, positive response, especially from one label in Mexico City called Umor Rex, who do this amazing ambient stuff, and then this small independent label in uh, just outside of Tokyo called Symbolic Intervention, and uh, he was really really into it. And within a few days, he emailed me back. He says, "Yes, I have to release this stuff. This is this will make a really good album." So that was about literally like three weeks ago, and uh, he's been really on the ball. He's already – it's only available in two places. One is Linus Records in Tokyo, and the other is Norman Records in Leeds in Yorkshire. Uh, both those record shops sell sort of obscure indie, you know, post-rock, ambient, electronica, weird stuff, sort of hard-to-find hard vinyl. So it's it's very nice now to actually have a physical release again on on a record label, rather than trying to do it myself. So that's that's been a lot of fun. Oh, and getting back to the tape thing. Tape. Yes. Yes, tape. tape. Like in I don't know about in the UK, but in the in Vancouver, 
if you go a lot of the gigs, the bands are now selling their their wares, you know, like the merchandise booth. Yeah. They're now selling their wares on cassette. And the <laughs> kids are loving it. Like the kids are buying these cassettes like crazy, even though none of them have a cassette deck. Oh, seriously? Um, yeah, the cassettes have a download card in there. Ah, uh, um, there you go. Download the MP3s, but there's there's the 16, 17-year-olds of the day are just becoming fascinated by this thing, you know, this plastic box with, like, two reels in it. Like, what is this thing? <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the, the cassette seems to be making a bit of a comeback, especially at, at gigs. Um, I don't know if that's, world, if that's becoming a phenomenon worldwide, but definitely here in Vancouver, the bands are not selling their stuff on CD or vinyl. It's all on cassette. That's crazy. I could understand this sort of like fetishistic retro return to vinyl, you know, this obsession over vinyl, because a lot of people say that vinyl is the best way to listen to music full stop. But this tape thing just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Yep. Well, we'll just have to see whether it catches on or not. Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I still listen to cassettes. Uh, I must admit, not, not much. It's probably only about like 2% of what I listen to. But yeah, I mean, doing the whole mixtape thing was, that was a lot of fun. I remember doing that a lot and just making sure each song fitted on perfectly and then fading out at the very, very end, you know, just there wasn't enough tape to, for, the, for the last song and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and coming up with fancy names of calling your mixtape, you know, trying to be cool and trendy and coming up with a good title. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was good, yeah, it was good fun. But uh, no, these days mostly it is CD, I must admit. Or MP3. Most of it's actually MP3 on my phone on the way to work. I don't know if you've seen the same sort of kind of evolution, but like, you know, you sort of started off making tapes, making mixtapes, which is a very creative exercise, as you say. There was lots of editing involved. Jeez, you're almost like a an editor of a film or something. And, you know, you have to think about the flow from one song to the other and all this stuff. And then then you just started doing like mix CDs, which is oh, just drag a bunch of really good songs into a playlist on iTunes and burn it off. And then now it's like, yeah, just make a playlist in YouTube. It's just getting less and less and less creative and less kind of involved, you know? Yeah, and I think that also goes back to what I was saying about this guy in Japan and, and his love for the music and the idea that it's not just about the music. It's about the whole package and the way it looks and the way it feels to your fingertips. And now I think a lot of a lot of the big, big multi-million selling acts out there you know, when they when they do release an album, but that's not really their intention. They're releasing an album because that's still the standard thing to do. But they're just focusing on one or two hit singles on that album. And ultimately, you know, your random person out there is just going to download those one or two tracks. They're not going to download the whole album. Yeah. So it has sort of lost that that whole package thing, which is why I, I still really like that whole package idea. Um I can understand some people can't be bothered anymore. I mean, I, I have friends who don't even have a CD player anymore. You know, everything they own is on the cloud. They, they have, they, you know, they don't even have a DVD player because everything's through, through Netflix. They got rid of all their albums. They sold all their CDs or took them down to the secondhand shop, whatever. Yeah. It's, everything's gone to the cloud. And it's like, wow. I, um, you know, whatever. It's each to their own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just said they're wrong. But uh, yeah, I just... Even uh, though I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I completely get where you're coming from, because especially with vinyl, you know, the package, 
you know, like when you sort of take the vinyl out and you've got like the thing that goes, oh, geez, you know, the thing like the booklet that goes inside it or whatever that kind of comes yeah. out, you know, there's just sort of taking that out and, you know, looking at it and like the feel of the record on your hand. I mean, I don't have many records on vinyl, I'll be honest, but, you know, it, it really is a nice feeling. And for me, the more familiar one was the with the CDs, you know, like I remember one of the first CDs I really, really got into when I was younger was Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by Smashing Pumpkins and like the, the booklet, like yeah, you know, yeah. pictures of the band in it and had all these cool like bits of artwork and I remember going and had all the lyrics in it and I used I remember going through that booklet like so many times and that booklet was like a massive part of my enjoyment of the album like it wasn't just the music it was the music plus this little bit of packaging that they'd done you know and yeah like just the the like the artwork that you get with an album I think is so important and yeah now it's just like what is it like especially if you're on on Bandcamp what's the artwork there it's like a JPEG do you know what I mean it's not the same. Yes, yes, it's not the same. I wonder also if there's a, something to do with our attention spans are becoming shorter, and we're not we're not able anymore to, uh, not able anymore to listen to an entire album. Wow. I don't know if there's I don't know if that's involved. You know, you you get that instant like when I am on on my computer looking at other people's music. I must admit, I just click play, and within five seconds, if it doesn't spark. I'm off to the next song. Oh, man. I know exactly what you mean. Which is very sad. It's so sad. But I think I've been rewired because of the internet and modern technology. I do still listen to an album, a full album, but I must admit it is getting harder and harder to to sit down and just put it on and to listen Yeah. without picking up my phone. Oh, have I got any messages? Or, or whatever, um, yeah. without any distraction. I think that comes into play a lot as well. And I'm, you know, I'm in my late 40s now. Who knows what it's like for 16, 18-year-olds oh, who's, yeah. who, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they haven't even ever listened to an album from start to end. Maybe they've never listened to a whole song from start to finish. <laughs> maybe they, right, well, maybe that's the future. Maybe, yeah, start writing like five-second songs. Yeah, exactly, Whoa. yeah. Thanks very much for your time today. It's been great to have you on the Smorgasbord. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And that, my friends, was Lee Nicholson. Lee was kind enough to send me a copy of his latest release as test card, and it's really damn cool. It's very atmospheric and ambient, but it's musical and well-written too. So head on over to Bandcamp and buy the thing. And on to my second guest, Ian Lowell. Ian wrote a really interesting book, The Son of Sam Was My Catcher and Other Bronx Tales, and he and I had a great talk about the background of this extraordinary book, and what it was like the day the music died. Ian Lowell, welcome to the Smorgasbord, sir. Well, thank you very much for having me today. Um, Taking time out of your day so we can talk. No problem at all. Thanks for your time as well. You've written a book called Son of Sam Was My Catcher and Other Bronx Tales, and it came out, I think, uh, a couple of years ago. Is that when it came out? Actually, it was released um, last year. Oh, it was released last year. Okay. Yes. Cool. I haven't had the pleasure of reading the book yet, but I definitely plan to do so. Um, And it sounds genuinely fascinating. One thing that I really liked about it when you've been describing the book is that you said that it spans four different genres. So it's autobiography, history, music, as well as sports. Correct. I decided to take that approach. Um, it told the story I felt I needed to tell. It's a very unusual and unorthodox approach. 
people write a book about history. People write a memoir. People write a book about sports or music. They don't combine them all into one book, but it's the only way I could actually tell the story I wanted to tell. So you, you felt that you would have had to have left important things out if you weren't able to sort of expand and include things like music and sports, for example. That would be absolutely correct. Okay, great. And so the background for the writing of the book, I understand, is that there was a Facebook group of people who used to live in the James Monroe houses in the Bronx. Is that right? Correct. And growing up there and your childhood there informs this book quite heavily. That would also be a fair assessment. So the James Monroe houses, um, can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about that and what it was like to, to grow up there in the 60s? Certainly. The 60s, uh, first of all, was in the United States and around much of the world, really, was a very fascinating time in that you had all this social change and upheaval. You had amazing music. You had some very earth-shattering events. But all in all, it was the good, the bad, the great, and the horrible, because there really was some element of all of those things going on in the 60s, the Kennedy assassination, the riots, other horrible things that went on as well. Yeah. The James Monroe Projects, located in the Bronx, which is one of the five boroughs in New York City, I guess you could say in a lot of ways it was a, a microcosm of, of the larger picture. Very diverse project, when I say housing project in this case and in most cases we're talking about low income housing projects yeah okay we didn't exactly have people that were wealthy and to me one of the things that really hit home about it was that despite our differences for the most part we really did get along it, it was a whole di diverse assortment of people primarily being Jewish, Irish, German, Italian, Puerto Rican, black. We really had pretty much any minority you could think of that in those days, what you would not find were Asians or Arabs. Uh, just that there wasn't all that many of them in, in New York at the time, really, relative to, to where we're at today. I'm not even close. Yep. And uh, to me, it was just a wonderful, wonderful place to have grown up in because it's where I learned many of my values, uh, loyalty, friendship, honesty. It really hit home for me being amongst really a lot of different groups. And we all were in the same uh, same boat, and that is. None of us had a whole lot of money, but this year was a lot of loyalty, friendship, and love. Man, that sounds fantastic. That sounds amazing. In the title of the book, you say that the son of Sam was your catcher, by which you mean that when you were a child, you played baseball with David Berkowitz, who in adulthood became the son of Sam serial killer. I just did a sort of very cursory bit of research on uh, David Berkowitz, and it seemed that some of his neighbors and his family found him to be quite difficult and to be uh, just uh, an unpleasant child when he was young. But I understand that your experience of him when you were children was really quite pleasant and that you knew him well. Yes, that's certainly true. Um, I uh, played 
softball. We had a soft, fast pitch softball team in a place called Shorehaven Beach Club in, in the Bronx. We played together some four years. Uh, he was not our regular catcher. He was the reserve catcher, but I certainly pitched to him on a number of occasions through the years. In addition, we bowled together in a league Saturday mornings for like two or three straight years. And the picture that he conveyed to us, all of us that knew him, was a soft-spoken, very polite kind of kid um, who, who, was, who was shy and wouldn't seem to hurt a fly, which uh, goes to show you it was certainly a prime example of of someone who hides who they really are. I mean, the problems that you alluded to had been going on, yes, since he was a child. But I only found that out well after the fact. It's not like he was going to tell us, hey, guys, you know what I did when I was 12 years old? I murdered my mother's parakeet. Because Jeez. I consider that parakeet to be a rival for my mother's affection. Or that I was killing and torturing little animals and things that – the type of things that he would have in common with many serial killers, as history has shown us in retrospect. That is one thing that they seem to have in common quite frequently is this – harming and torturing of killing of little animals. But he, we didn't know any of this. I mean, yeah, we had no clue. Um, he seemed like a nice kid, a genuinely nice, sincerely nice kid who just wasn't about to cause any harm to anyone. And needless to say, when we found out uh, who Son of Sam actually was when he was arrested uh, back in the summer of 1977, we were, all of us that knew him, we were beyond shocked. We couldn't reconcile how this could have been the notorious 44 killer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we just couldn't imagine that there could be such a disconnect, realizing, of course, that, you know, even when we knew him, there was quite a freak show going on in his head that none of us knew about because serial killers don't become serial killers overnight. Sure. It happens over a long period of time. And um, it, it was just an incredible shock for everyone beyond anything we could almost begin to put into words. What was it like to uh, live in the Bronx around that time? You know, during the time it happened, a lot of the, a lot of the girls were at women were absolutely terrified um and in fact uh, you know he seemed to favor um young women with with dark hair brunettes so you had women that were dyeing their hair blonde they were tying their hair up in buns they were dyeing it other colors anything to not look like what we believed his target was. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it was a very frightening time for the for the women, especially um, because I mean, here you've got this maniac that that's roaming the city apparently at will, uh, ready to kill and maim, uh, and very much able to do it uh, and get away with it uh, x number of times. 
moving back to the 60s now, which I think the 60s is that that's like one of the main focuses of your book. That's the absolute focus of the book. That's the absolute focus of the book. And you were saying earlier that it was unparalleled as a decade in terms of how much was going on in America at that time. And yet there was, you know, so much political upheaval, social upheaval, and as well culturally and with the music that you were sort of talking about. How do you think that the current decade we're in right now, obviously it's not quite at the end of six years old. How do you think it compares? Because I was thinking about this earlier. And on the one hand, there's been quite a bit of political upheaval. But culturally, you know, if you compare this decade that we're in now, in terms of the things that we as a sort of people share culturally, I mean, we're almost completely bereft. It's almost boiled down to just memes. You know, there's not much sort of shared culture anymore in the way that music was in the 60s. You know the the musical um, the musical world at this point in time is, in in my estimation, a, a very barren place. There 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 is still some really good and great music to be had and found. But you really got to look in, in in a lot of non traditional places to find it, um, like small clubs and things of that nature. Um, they're not the kind of things you're going to find anymore just right in the middle of the mainstream because it's not there. Whereas the 60s was about the diversity. Yeah. The, the 2000s, the 1990s, um, 2010s plus, it's more about, to me, about conformity. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, what you did touch upon is the po the political spectrum and from my viewpoint, my vantage point, I think that people are not politically involved and politically attuned the way they had been in in a period of the 60s and and the 1970s, especially the early part of it until Vietnam ended. However, uh, that being said, what I'm seeing now um, with with the election of Donald Trump is, is I think uh, we may be seeing a a, a much renewed political vigor going on in, in the United States at this time, um, because it, as I'm sure you know, there's already been a lot of pushback as to the election protests, and, and there's just a lot going on, you know, just very, very suddenly it's all happened in the wake of a, the unexpected uh, victory of Donald Trump seizing the presidency. Trump's rise to power, it has the potential to be one of the most politically disruptive things to ever happen in American history, doesn't it? American history, you know, I don't pretend to be a student of American history throughout, say, the 1800s, but I will say this. In my lifetime, I think what's going on is before Donald Trump has even moved into the White House, it's extremely rancorous and unsettling yeah it's a it's a it's a crazy time to be alive in it's especially so in this country right now with the shit that's going on with trump let me tell you all the all the trolls and the bigots they're all coming out of the woodwork man onto something more positive actually i wanted to speak sure. to you a little bit about music um so music is is a music is a love of yours it, absolutely it has been um since the age of four, we went to, me and my family uh, went to a, uh, 
very common back in the, in the 50s, in the time period I'm talking about, uh, to have these drive-in movie theaters. They're, they're all but extinct now, okay? Yeah. The opening movie was Rock Around the Clock. And I was so taken with Bill Haley and seeing them in this big screen where we're sitting in our car and I'm, I'm like, I'm really at a point where I'm just beginning to start to remember things. I'm four years old. I can't really remember anything before the age of three or four. Yeah. And how taken I was with this performance of Rock Around the Clock and how it was seared into my brain. And ever since that time, I had this this love of, of, of rock and roll. I mean, yeah, I mean, I might not have been able to appreciate it in the same way that people much older than me and the teens, uh, the teenage kids uh, were able to appreciate it. But uh, it, to me, it was incredible even back then. And from that point on, what can I say? I, it's just like a lifelong love, love affair with rock and roll music. Yes, I listened to other types of music like blues and, and a lot of jazz and things like that. But back when I was a kid, rock and roll was it, and it was the only thing. <laughs> okay, rock and roll and R and B. Because oh man, because rock and roll was just—it was so different to anything that came before it, wasn't it? It absolutely was, and uh, even as even as a kid that was super young, I knew that this was something that was really new and different. That much I was able to understand. I mean, this was not how much is that doggy in the window, okay? (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, you know, I got to tell you, I I, I was born in 52, so I I was six years old when Buddy Holly died, the day the music died. Buddy Holly, of course, uh, Richie Valens, the big bopper, dying in the plane crash. And I have to be probably one of very, very, very few people my age that can not only remember that day, but remember it well. Yeah. I really do remember that. And, you know, I knew it wasn't as if when I heard it, I, I'm thinking to myself, who's Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper? I know exactly who they are. I know the songs. I know who they are. And I guess in my own way, it really – Really hit me hard. I remember um, several months after the after the fatal plane crash, my brother, my brother Artie, who was he was seven years old when he was thirteen, he bought this single called Three Stars. It was by uh, with Tommy D with Carol Kay and the the Teen Airs, if my my uh, memory serves me correctly. In any event, uh, I remember playing that record over and over as a tribute to the three fallen stars, okay? And uh, I guess that was my own way. I was grieving. I didn't know what it was at six years old, okay? Yeah, yeah. But I was grieving. Yeah, it was like a wake. Exactly. So, I mean, once, once I – once – Rock and roll got into my brain. That was it. You know, that that was absolutely it. Thanks so much for your time, Ian Lowell. It's been a genuine, genuine pleasure to speak well, to you. Well, thank you. 
I really appreciate you having me on the show today, and best of luck with all future endeavors, sir. And that, my friends, was Ian Lowell. Please check out his book. I've put links to where you can find it, along with links to Lee Nicholson's music, so you can check that out, too. That's all we have for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. I will be back on January 20th with episode 7 of the Smorgasbord, and a couple of weeks before that, the next game and desserts will be out. So watch out for both of those delights coming at you early in the new year. And thanks to you, as always, for listening to this show. I really appreciate it. Have an amazing Christmas, and I'll see you all back here in 2017.